I'm Piers Linney and welcome to Rethinking Business, a new podcast brought to you by NatWest. Let's face it, the path to business success is rarely straightforward. That's why in this series, we're hearing from businesses who are thinking differently, disrupting industries, turning obstacles into advantages and bouncing back when things inevitably don't go to plan. My guest today is a founder of a tech company called Pouch, which is cashing in on the world of online discounts. Their software automatically finds and inserts discount codes into a range of websites, saving users time, hassle, and most importantly, money when shopping. Pouch has been tipped as one of the UK's most exciting startups, and I'm looking forward to finding out more. With me is one of the three co-founders and CFO, Johnny Plain. Hi, Johnny. Hey, Piers. Thanks for having me today. So just, as always, just explain to listeners what Pouch does, what problem you're trying to solve, and how you got to where you are today. Just a bit of background. So millions of people shop online, and I think everyone's been there. When they've been at the checkout page of a store, and they've seen that little box that says, enter your voucher code here. And what most people do is they go and Google X company voucher code, and they get a list of results that they don't trust, they don't know, and they could spend ages searching through this list of results and actually not finding a valid voucher code. It's a real point of frustration and it actually happens to millions and millions of people every day. My friend from school and co-founder came to me and said, look, if we can get all the available discount codes in front of users without them having to search for it, we're absolutely changing this whole discount scope. Some of the big players in online discounting are making you know, 50, 60 million pounds a year we could have a part of that. So the idea was really simple. Let's get all the discount codes together and put them in front of users. And the best piece of tech to do that is what's called a browser extension. So we built this pretty simple piece of tech, which effectively collated all the available discount codes and presented you them to the user at the checkout page so they never had to search for a voucher code again. So I'm showing my age now, but uh, I remember voucher codes when there were things you cut out of magazines. And there are actually um, services that told you where to go and get them or where to get the codes from. And they were physical and printed. So you're the sort of digital version of this, aren't you? So the first voucher code was issued by Coca-Cola in 1904. And from there, you've had vouchers in magazines, in newspapers, clippings. Then they went online and got really big around the recession in 2008. And they became such an integral part of all online retailer strategy that thousands of websites use discount codes. But you got to this point where there was so much bad data and so many codes floating about that no one had actually organized properly in a really user-focused way. So we were the first people in the UK to really do this and say, hey, consumer, download this extension called Pouch. And in one click, you can apply all the best discount codes to your basket. You never need to search for a code again. We're going to do all the hard work for you. So you weren't the first in this sector, were you? There were other people uh, discount code businesses. So why, why were you different? We were different because we weren't a voucher code website. We were a browser extension, a different piece of tech. I'm not going to compare us to someone like Uber, but I'm going to. Before you had to call up a taxi company, like speak to a physical person, arrange the time you're going to be picked up and hope they showed up. Kind of similar with these voucher codes. You would Google X company voucher code, have a list of results, and you couldn't trust any of them. You had no brand loyalty with any of them. And we wanted to create the first brand that users actually trusted and liked. And if you go on like 
Poucher's website or Poucher's Trustpilot compared to a Voucher Code's Trustpilot, we've got five stars and all the others have two or three because they don't care about their consumer. And all products were going in a really consumer-focused way, uh, you know, putting the user first, being totally consumer-centric, and we wanted to apply the same principles to a space where those principles actually hadn't been applied before. So you were, it's more about the UX, really, the yeah. experience. About the UX, about the user experience. Initially, we weren't that bothered about making money. It was about making sure the users were really happy with the product we had built to them, and then the advertisers would come. And to explain to listeners and myself to some extent is, so the, the brands, it might be an online retailer, they have costed in, I guess, a number of discount codes, a percentage, and they want people to use them because it's a marketing strategy, isn't it? And the idea is is making sure for them, as far as they're concerned, that they are used and people find them. Is that the basic exactly. underlying model? So, exactly. So online retailers will use discount codes for a number of ways to acquire new customers, to sell old stock, to promote a new product. And all of this voucher code usage is a stream of digital marketing called affiliate marketing. It was created by Amazon uh, when they launched, and Amazon used to pay another website owner a commission for driving a user to their website. It's the exact same model. A retailer will pay us commission every time a user uses one of these voucher codes and buys these products. So retailers want these vouchers used. They want new customers. They want to sell certain products, and we're just giving them a loyal customer base that they can reach. So you've got the codes, you've got access to the databases. I guess your challenge is to get as many people as possible who shop online to download your browser extension. Yeah. So browser extensions only work on desktop computers. So one of our biggest challenges is that a lot of the action happens on desktop. That's where still 70 to 80% of money is spent. But a lot of the browsing activity happens on mobile. So a lot of people hear about Pouch on their mobile. How do we get them to then download on a desktop? We haven't ever had trouble people hearing about it. It's just driving that funnel to make sure people download a desktop app. And that was one of our biggest troubles getting investment with people saying, oh, it's a mobile world. It's a mobile world. How can you have a desktop product? And it's like, well, that's just your view. I'm surprised, actually. I thought that um, transactions on mobiles were much higher than that. Transactions on mobiles are growing. And all the stats are about how mobile transactions are growing year on year. But desktop transactions are still 70 80%. And when I say mobile, I mean like mobile web. So if you're booking a flight, if you're a loyal BA customer, you're going to book through the BA app maybe on your phone. But you're never going to be searching flights from London to South Africa on the Safari browser on your Apple iPhone. Those big ticket purchases are all done on desktop. So I can see that Pouch is a platform and that you obviously needed some investment to go into it to build out the platform. So just talk me through your background in terms of financing, how you funded the business. So by trade, I'm an accountant. I worked in corporate finance for three and a half years. So I had a decent idea about like the actual process to go through to raise money, but it's very different doing it for a client and then doing it for yourself. We knew we needed quite a lot of money to get this thing working because, as you said, we need to invest in the platform and then we need to invest in driving users to download the product. Our CTO is amazing and he actually built most of it himself. So in terms of the tech investment... He had equity in the business, so he built it for that equity. And we had a really good team. We had my um, myself, who did like finance operations. We had Ben, who worked in affiliate marketing. We had Vic Graham, our CTO, who built the whole platform. So when we went out to investors, it was quite a compelling pitch because we had a really good core team. And 
we raised our first round of funding from an angel investor. He put £95,000 into the business when we had nothing, really just an idea and a, and a minimal viable product. And we used that money to try and grow the user base. But we didn't know what we were doing in the beginning. And we wasted 15 grand out of that initial 95 on two pretty disastrous marketing campaigns. We outsourced that because we didn't have the skill set in the business. So after we wasted that money, we made the decision saying, no, we can't rely on other people's skills here. We need to bring the skills in-house. So, so how did that go down then? So you've spent the money, campaign's gone out. I guess you open your laptop to look at the ROI and the stats and it's the big fat zero. It was more that the campaign was set up so badly by a partner, we didn't even have those stats to look at. So we thought we're not going to do anything now until we can measure pound to value. So but I guess you could, yeah. you could work out that the ROI you spent this and you had X number of downloads, simplistically. So the ROI on our product was quite interesting because you could spend, let's say, one pound on getting a download, but we may not make back that pound for, let's say, six months. So we were always in this working capital dilemma in the company saying we could spend 50 grand now, but we may not get that 50 grand back for six months. We knew we'd get it back, but as a startup, when you're quite undercapitalized, that's a big risk because you've got salaries to pay while you're getting all that money back. So being the accountant, was that something you'd worked out from day one or didn't you realise that the working capital hole would be so big? We only saw how big it was when we were kind of in the game. We firstly thought it was going to be a lot easier and cheaper to get downloads than it actually was. And we still did okay getting downloads for £1, £1.50 if you looked at other kind of digital marketing to get an actual, the action, desired action you want, that's pretty cheap. But it was taking longer to get the money back into the company than we thought. And that's mainly to do with the billing cycles of affiliate networks and not our consumers using the product. It can take one to three months to get paid on a transaction you've driven to get the actual cash back into your company. So I guess so A, you'd spend some money you probably didn't need to. Yeah. You learned that lesson. But also you realised that your working capital requirement was a lot larger than you thought it was. Yeah. So you went to raise more money. We went to raise more money. So this is where the story gets really interesting. So we ran these kind of marketing campaigns in late 2016 when we launched the business and we'd all quit our jobs and gone full time on the company. So we raised £95,000 from this one angel, wasted some of it, and now we're kind of in Jan, Feb 2017. We've just finished on an accelerator program called Mass Challenge that we won. And by win, it meant that we got to stay on for five more months in free office space in Tobacco Docks in London, which was great to save money there. But we also got some press. So we were in Forbes and startups.co.uk. And from that press, we were approached by the BBC to go on Dragon's Den. And we went through the application process. It took four weeks, but effectively we knew that we were going to be going on the show in May 2017. But we could have that episode could have been aired any point between August and January 18. So at that point, we said, no more spending on digital marketing. Let's reserve our cash for building out the product because we know we're going to get traffic to our website at some point. This was like a trump card for us. We were like, wow, looking at the stats and the viewing figures, two, three million people watch this show. If we can convert, you know, just five, 10% of those onto our product, we're going to be in a really, really strong position. So we recorded the show in May 2017 and we got five offers for the business. Now, when you go onto a show, especially like Dragon's Den as a tech company, the valuations you can get are not what you can get in the market. 
it's usually for, and you'll know this yourself, you know, if, if it's a consumer product, it's all based on how many sales you've made, what your contracts are. But as a tech product like ours, we had about 5,000 active users and we made about two grand to date. So to make sure valuation, all those questions were taken out of the out of the question, we asked our German angel to invest another 50K into the business. One, so we could say to the dragons, our initial angel was followed on. And two, because if our show was aired in December, we needed money to pay our very, very low wages, but we still needed money to tide us over until the show aired. And, we and got it also set a price. When you're in there negotiating, you could refer back to yeah. an existing investor. If someone says, oh, why is the business worth this much? You can say, well, someone else bought it this much. Therefore, that's the market price. And you kind of leave that topic of conversation alone. And because of the way we presented our story, we got five offers which was only the third time in 15 years it had happened. So we knew that we're going to be aired, we're going to get the big slot, we're going to get a lot of attention from it. And uh, yeah, our website didn't crash on the day the show aired, which was really, really important. I used to always have a bet with people that I invested in that the website will go down and only, only one of them avoided it because the impact is huge. You know, you've got X million people pick up their phone and have a look at your website. Yeah, so we, we live streamed our Google Analytics and you can see it going zero people on and then your name is shown for the first time and then it's maybe 2,000 people on and then I think we peaked at 50,000 people on our website at the same time going from zero to 50,000 in about 45 seconds. So carry on, carry on your Dragon's Den story because I, I was on there what 2013, 14 um, I invested in a few tech companies I think I got the highest valuation ever until recently well I think I got 5% for 100k but let's go for that experience then because I think there's, there's probably some lessons here not just about Dragon's Den, but just investment conversations, structures and uh, experiences generally. Absolutely. It was super fun and super interesting. Most people, like the casual man on the street, that I guess the only, if they're not in the world of finance or investing, Dragon's Den is their reference point for how investments are made. And it's really interesting people asking us, oh, how did it go? Did they really put this money into the reality? And the reality is very different. So I don't know how it was for you, but for us, the investment was not equity it was effectively a loan so um, so i'll just let me just stop you there yeah. so my when i was in dragon's den um everything i did was equity and my understanding always was that it was equity now there's two sides to that coin at the, end of the day if you're an investor you will look at an opportunities and uh, try and protect yourself so dragon's den was was really is your money and you shook hands on the show but that wasn't the end of the process was it you know as any investor you'd go through due diligence and i think that um I, I probably shook hands on nine deals and six happened for various reasons. I think over time that has changed. I think there's less of the deals happening and it might be because entrepreneurs are becoming wise to the PR value or it might be the structure of the change and becoming more aggressive and I don't know why that would be. But um, just talk us through the, the debt deal because that was something that um, I personally wouldn't have done. I can't actually remember the exact numbers that we went on the show with. I think in the end we agreed £75,000 for 18% but to keep it simple... Let's say I'd asked for 100 grand and I was giving 10% of my business away. So a million pound valuation on the company. The way this deal was presented to us was we would be given the 100,000 pound, but then we would be liable to, or the company would be liable to the investor to pay back 4,000 pound a month for the next 25 months, effectively paying all the money back. So it was more of a working capital injection than an equity investment. The difficult thing was, and where we were really unhappy, was that once you paid back all that money, the investor, the dragon, 
kept their 10% in the business. So they would loan you the money, they would get paid all the money back and they keep their equity in the business. What made it worse was that if the business didn't go well and you couldn't pay them back the money, the liability, the 100 grand, moved from the company to the individual. So suddenly you're not protected by your company going bankrupt if things goes wrong. The dragons could go after your personal wealth uh, to get their money back. So let's maybe not focus on Dragon's Den because I don't think it matters. I think that the deal you've outlined is actually quite common. The private equity industry is very much about, we'll put a tiny piece of equity in, the rest is debt, the company pays the debt off, they've got all their equity now for a tiny payment essentially. And that's the way these structures work, but augmenting risk. Which is fine, but, but there's a question of whether that works for a, a startup. Now, again, I think you've correctly spotted that the potential biggest problem there is with my legal hat on, it's called piercing the corporate veil, is that you have a limited liability company to limit your liability. And when somebody asks you to, essentially you ask you a personal guarantee, it's not something you have to always run away from, but it's something you need to think long and hard about. Um, so, so what happened? We said no. <laughs> no, that was easy. We so said no. We said no. And what you said before about... We still needed the money. So we still needed the money. And what you said about becoming wise to the PR stuff, we thought, realistically, we're not going to fight too hard to make this deal happen because unlike a physical product where we need the contacts to, let's say, get into Sainsbury's, we're a digital product. We knew our episode or our showing was going to be aired because of how well it went, getting the five offers. Um, so we thought, well, we're going to get all this traffic to our website anyway. Let's go and raise money from other people. And in about six weeks, we raised £180,000 from 10 different angel investors, some who we were introduced to, some who I knew before. But effectively, we had one hundred eighty grand put into the business. For a similar amount of equity as the... No, on the for a much, much better valuation. So it was a multi-million pound valuation. Uh, these angels got their SEIS and EIS tax relief, which was important to them. And um, they very much saw it as we're backing the team. The product's really good and you're going to get a load of traffic. So let's see how this goes. So the funding journey goes 18,000 family and friends, 95 from our angel, another 50 from our angel and 180,000 from a new group of angels. So in total, we've raised £343,000 in about nine months. Now, that is a lot of money, but in the well, startup you can get world... very quickly when yeah. you're trying to build a platform and you're, you know, you're talking about here consumer marketing. Yeah, exactly. Um, in reality, it wasn't a big enough arsenal, especially considering our model, whereby you spend a pound today and you may see £2, but only in six months. And this is what kills lots of young companies is that if your working capital is that way around, it means that the faster you grow, the more successful you are, Yeah, potentially the more money you need. Exactly. And that's kind of where we were. So we recorded the show in May. The episode airs in August and it's brilliant. We get 60,000 users overnight. Our revenues jump up like 15x. It's all very happy, happy. We've got all these users in like late August, September. It's start of the shopping season. We have Black Friday and everything's going really well come the end of 2017. But in the start of 2018, I knew we needed more money because we only had about 150 grand left in the bank and given the plans we wanted and how quickly we wanted to grow, we could have easily spent 50 grand a month just in digital marketing. So in 2018, this is when stuff started to go um, a bit wrong for us. The way our, our, our model worked was that these advertisers can say, actually, we don't want to pay you commissions 
anymore. We've changed our budget. We're not doing as much discounting. And we lost some really big players, and that accounted about 20% of our revenue. And these are online codes, I guess. So any minute, they can just turn them off, essentially. Well, they keep the codes out there, but they just say, if you promote these codes, we're not going to pay you commission for promoting them at the minute. There's nothing you can do about that. Nothing we can do. Affiliate marketing is a great model to scale in, but it's quite hard to maintain. There's a lot of relationship management you you need there. And we just didn't have the size or the people to kind of win those people back at that point. Now we work with them again, but it took like a year to get there. So we've lost some revenue. Um, We've hired some more people to support the tech side of the business because we're a tech company at the end of the day um, and developers are not cheap. So we're increasing our burn rate and we've got to raise some money from another source. We wanted to raise about £2 million. So were you doing the old thing about you're winding in the marketing spend to try and preserve cash? So your costs are going up because you're investing in technology. You're winding in the marketing spend with your money going out of the door. So actually... It's just getting worse. Yeah, so you're kind of in a survival mode and that's kind of where we went to. So we didn't expect to be there, but the venture capital firms we were looking at to raise money from said, okay, you're 15 grand a month. Whilst it's great considering you were doing nothing six months ago, it's not enough for us to invest. You need to be doing 50, 60 grand a month. We didn't have the cash to invest to get from 15 grand a month to 50 grand a month without running out of money. You can do the modeling. It's like really simple. If you're going to take six months to get the money back and you've got these operating costs and you need to spend this much to drive the downloads, we were going to run out of money. So it kind of not into survival mode because we had cash and we were still growing, but we had to look at other opportunities to raise to raise cash. I guess that was an interesting time for the three founders. Yeah, it was just because this was all of our first business. None of us had done something like this before. And it's quite scary because you are in a bit of a rock and a hard place and you've taken on money from people you're trying to deliver a return to. So you've got a commitment to them. You've got a commitment to your staff because you don't want to have to let them go. How did you manage just on those? On each of those, how did you manage it? Because I've been an entrepreneur and I've been, you know, I've done it when things aren't going to plan. You've got all these stakeholders and, you know, some hide under a rock, whereas often it's better to communicate. Uh, But it can be even harder with staff sometimes. So as much as as a founder, you think that your staff, you're keeping stuff away from your staff, they pick up on everything, every small thing. You know, if you send out in your management monthly update that our revenues have dropped 20%, people think, oh, why have they dropped? They continue dropping. What's happening? I.e., they're just thinking, is my job at risk? And we were very upfront with our employees the whole point saying, look, if anything ever happens in this company, you're going to be knowing when we're growing and you're going to be knowing when we're slowing down because you know, we've taken a while to get this team how we wanted it and we don't want to lose anyone. So yeah, that's, it's really difficult. And there's no one to really ask questions to. You're trying to grow this thing, you know, on the outside, on LinkedIn, on, you know, all the press we were getting, great, things are going well. And yeah, okay, you've gone from five grand a month, to 15 grand a month, things are going well, but you're thinking about how am I going to build a business that's going to be a million pounds a month in three years. And that's like, those step changes are really hard to get, especially when, You've got all these people depending on you and you find yourself spending so much time dealing with those other issues that you may take your ball off actually growing the company. So was it that your hypothesis didn't work or was it the fact that it could work? It just needed a a lot of working capital. It could work. We need a lot of working capital. So we could have raised half a million quid from our angels. We had that money on the table, but I didn't want half a million quid. Half a million quid goes, you hire two developers, 60 grand a month each, spend 20 grand a month on marketing, whatever it may be, suddenly you're back in a year's time. You may have grown 
may have doubled you, or tripled the you business. You can down the road, but yeah, you effectively, yeah. and you just take on more money from people. And half I wasn't comfortable taking on half a million pounds because it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get us that step change where we felt we had a big enough arsenal to grow. So did you think about giving up or saying to shareholders, look, I'm really sorry, there's 150 left in the bank. Here it is. You've got your EAS, SEAS loss relief. Um, sorry about that. No. To the bitter end. <laughs> Wait, and there's two sides to that coin. Sometimes that's the right thing to do. And you you, know, you come out on the right side. And sometimes you know, it isn't <laughs> because you're just going to burn yeah. the rest of the cash. So we hadn't been doing it long enough to really think, let's give up yet. We were making progress and we had a lot of interest in us. And our users loved the product. At the end of the day, like a product was good. And we thought there is someone out here that can benefit from what we're doing. There is a corporate partner or a potential sale or something's going to happen. We just need to keep pushing for that next opportunity. And this is when the whole personal growth of becoming a founder comes in, like the relentlessness, the not giving up, the visualization, all these things that you don't really think about before you start a business and you realize that your mental state is just as important so as the state no of the company. you had no support, you had no a chairman or your investors. They couldn't really add value, really. They were, just, they were providing capital, but No, they, they could, but personal support. Like, and they and they did offer the personal support, but and that's great to keep you there in the business. But you you need to push on, and and there wasn't um, an investor there that was in the space in our space. There were kind of wealthy people that were smart business people that trusted us, but none of them worked in the digital couponing space and knew how to unlock those doors for us. We did get a, a term sheet from an investor who was in the digital couponing space, but as we talked about investment structures before, again, it just was a bad deal. So, and that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes you can. Um take a bad deal because you think it's the only option whereas in the heart of hearts sometimes the gut you know that it's a bad deal and it's you know kicking the can again really yeah and also you become demotivated yeah you don't want to be in a position where the most important thing with the the way we raise funding is that the three of us were always in control because as much as someone thinks they're really smart and they know how to do things unless they're on the ground every day like they're not going to be making the best decisions for the company but you went through through accelerators didn't you yeah so, so at this point we're talking March 2018, we could have raised the half a million quid and we were still debating, I didn't want to do it. And then News UK, who own The Sun and The Times, they came along and they were saying, hey, we, our print media is declining year on year. We need to invest in startups that fit our audience. We need to invest in startups that can help our audience save money because that's what they said they're interested in doing. We were like, okay, brilliant. And this is what I'm talking about, fighting for an opportunity through all this... I want to use the word strife. It was just a lot of figuring out the next step. Suddenly, out of nowhere, or you think out of nowhere, this company come and approaches you saying, hey, we want to invest seven figures in your business and, and grow you. And we were like, amazing. This is this is what we're doing now. So um, we started working with News UK. And News UK had this... So now you think, great, here we go. Exactly. We've gone through this really bad three months. Now we're going to have a really great three months. And they basically said the investment's a done deal. As long as you can meet these technical requirements, you're going to get seven figures from us and they love the product it really suited their audience you know automatic discount codes uh they love the the pouch brand as well and um so we start working with them we work with them for two and a half months we move into their offices and we work with the discounting team at news uk and there are two other startups that are working with them as well and all of us are meant to get investment from from this from news uk uh, so from April to the end of June, we're working with them. And the first week of July, they're meant to say to us, great, we're moving to, to, to legals. You're going to get the money in your bank account. And we get an email and calls from them basically saying, oh, our corporate strategy has changed slightly. We need six more months 
before we can give you a decision. And this is where we were a bit naive. I think it would be all quick. Big corporates are slow. I mean, I've got some painful experience of good and bad, actually, uh, experience of working with large corporates. And I think that you can take it quite personally. You think, it, but it's, it, I don't think it's not corporate um, malice. It's just that they just they work in different ways. So you, you have to understand if you're a small company, you're listening in and you're talking to a large supplier or a large potential customer or a retailer or an investor, is that, hey, you're, you think as an entrepreneur and you and your founders, you think in a, you know, minutes, hours, days, and you're in a room together, they think in quarters, half years, year, even three-year cycles. And somebody can change, somebody leaves, someone joins, yeah. and change the whole strategy overnight. And that's just the way it is. That's it. So, so you survive that. So at this point, you know, that was kind of our, our carrot, and we didn't get it. And that was a really hard time for the company as well. But our user base had carried on growing, and we were still making money, and people were still giving us great feedback on the product. So it was, again, like a mental thing of, we're doing really well in this space. Like people are hearing about our product. Advertisers are now starting to come to us. Just because we're, you know, don't have that much budget, we've still got to just stick to our guns and keep going because but some, are you running out of cash happen. then though? After News UK said no to us, we restructured the business, which basically means we had to let some people go. Um so we were running at break even and we did an R and D tax claim on the two years of tech investment we had made. So we got back a pretty substantial chunk of cash. Then we got back around £60,000. So we're break even. So I think we had like eighty or £90,000 in the bank at this point. Um, and we weren't burning any cash. So we weren't running out of money. But you don't want to just survive. You want to thrive. It doesn't matter if you've got ninety grand in the bank, if you're not investing it and not growing the business. It just meant that we had time for other opportunities to come. So, you know, we had Dragon's Den as an opportunity, made sure we had cash in the bank to capitalise on that. Then we had News UK as an opportunity and we had cash in the bank to make sure that even if that fell through, we weren't going to, you know, the business wasn't going to fail. But in part of this cost-cutting exercise and kind of finding our feet exercise, we came across the NatWest Accelerator, which is a, a programme run in London. And they've got this office space in Angel where one of their old offices used to be. We got free office space, which is great. You know, saving two grand a month on office space for six people was brilliant. And we got good mentorship. And, you know, at the time when we'd been let down by News UK, it was really good to have that mentorship there to like talk through as a team how we're going to deal with these next issues. And usually that mentorship costs a lot of money and you don't know what people's intentions are. Um, finding a good mentor is really hard. So to have that kind of given us there, but from professionals and knew what they were doing was really, really great. So it gave you some space to sort of reset Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it gave us a bit of perspective because, you know, you're working as a team in this one space. You don't see all the struggles of all other people. So it was a really good, really good time to be, so to what, be there. So where was your head at then? So what was the issue? You still need to basically raise some cash so the, or sell out or something. You've got to keep the faith in these situations where things aren't going that well. But as long as you believe in your product and you believe in the value of delivering to people, everyone struggles to raise money. Everyone struggles with different partnerships that fall down. It was a case of we need something that's going to help push this business along. Otherwise, let's just let it run. It's going to generate money for us. We've got users on board. It will probably keep growing and then we can go try something else. So, yeah, we wanted an exit at this point or another corporate partner that wasn't going to let us down. When we were working with News UK, we did a press release saying News UK is working with Pouch. Uh, we're building a browser extension together. I'm really excited about what it's going to do for our users. Daily Mail and News UK watch each other like hawks. 
and Daily Mail saw this press release and contacted their tech provider who runs Daily Mail's voucher code site. So I don't know if you know this, but Daily Mail have a voucher code site that's run by a company called Global Savings Group. It's the second biggest in the UK. And Global Savings Group are a, a Munich-based tech company who build white-label voucher code websites for some of the biggest publishers in the world. And Daily Mail kind of expressed their interest. So Global Savings Group reached out to us and said, hey, let's let's have a conversation. And this is around late August 2018. And very quickly, it became clear that they wanted to acquire the company. So, you know, from six weeks before, where we've just been let down by News UK, and we don't know where we are, we've gone through a process of letting go, go of staff, getting onto the NatWest Accelerator, becoming break-even, changing the structure of the company. And now, six weeks later, we are being talked about being acquired. So, this is what so there's two sides to that coin, isn't there, as well? One is you've got you know, aspirations and a vision to create, you know, some probably multi-million pound, even billion pound business if you possibly could. Yeah. Yet someone says to you, right, do you want out? And I guess, how, how did the team feel about that? So, mixed. Our investors still backed us. They were just so disappointed as well about what happened with News UK. But at the same time, they say, well, if there's big corporates interested in you, there's something here. Again, we could have raised money from them, but it came to a point where we say, right, we take on more money from our investors. This is the journey we go on. And this is the potential returns I think we can get. Or here's an, here's an opportunity for an acquisition. Um, and part of the deal was that all our staff or our remaining staff would be retained and taken over to the new company. And just on balance at the time of where we were, having done it for two years, which is a very short amount of time, it made sense for our investors, for our staff and for us as founders to to sell. Um, so yeah, it's like risk reward um, situation. And, and also, I didn't want to be in a point where we said no, and then maybe there was a bit of anxiety as well. We said no, and then another deal wouldn't come along. Yeah, I mean, you've been on quite a roller coaster, haven't you? Exactly. So emotionally, I think we were quite exhausted too. And we love the company. We love their culture. They fitted really well. Like they were an, a disruptor in the voucher code space in the same way that we were. We saw like a, a matching of ambitions of what we wanted to do. And for us, we were like, well, okay, we're not going to have equity in the business anymore. Um, but we're going to get some money as founders, which is is great. And we, you know, I don't know what my other founders would say. I never started the business to make a load of money. I started it to learn and I didn't make a load of money. Um, but I learned a lot. And we were going to be in a place where we could actually build out the product, get more users involved and kind of fulfill our ambitions of disrupting this um, voucher code space. And that's what we're doing with them. So Global Savings Group wanted us to build a product for the Daily Mail. So we've now built the Daily Mail Extras browser extension for the Daily Mail and Daily Mail are promoting it to their user base. So uh, they've got 350 million hits to their website a month. So what's it like now? Because you must be able to see almost what could have been in a way in terms of the numbers and the, because, you know, they have a huge reach. I mean... You're seeing um, more technology and your your idea out there now doing what it's supposed to. I mean, I remember going to a football match at Wembley Stadium and it was like, oh, we're at maximum capacity, 80,000 people. You're looking around so many people. I'm like, there's more people using my product than in the stadium right now. And that's kind of mind-blowing. And Global Savings Group have kind of set us up in a way where we're kind of motivated to keep performing and they're going to take the product abroad. And it's a great environment. 
and that's why all the staff are still there. So you've learned a lot. I mean, you've been on quite a roller coaster. And I think your story, and I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs and some have invested in and backed, and the story is very similar to yours. They have, you know, there's five steps forward, two back, and sometimes they don't end where yours ended. They, they run out of money. Mm. And, you know, I've been involved in businesses where the idea was great, but it, timing can be everything, mm-hmm. and not raising the right finance, you know, it's a one-way option sometimes. So going through all of that, and it's part just picking out a number of top tips. This podcast yeah. is about rethinking business and you obviously been, you rethought the voucher code's business. But it's also about overcoming obstacles and you've seen quite a few. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting what you've been through because I think it's really quite common. But what are your top tips? What are the three things you would sort of pull out from that experience and share? Okay. Always raise more money than you think you'll need because everything is more expensive and takes longer to happen than you think. So... When we raised 180 grand, we could have raised probably like 240. We thought, no, we don't want to dilute ourselves anymore. 180 is enough. I wish we'd taken the 240. Yeah, so the two things there. One is entrepreneurial optimism in that you don't yeah. want to be diluted. Yeah. And secondly, sometimes it's not available, so you just want to crash on as well. And But I think the, the point you made about not wanting to be diluted, mm. because if you don't get to the next phase, you don't have a business. Yeah, so would you rather have, you know, a small piece of something big or a large piece of nothing, you'd obviously want to have a small piece of something big. Um, but we'd given up quite a lot of equity in our first few rounds. So we honestly, yeah, we were a bit naive and a bit optimistic and an extra 60K would have been would have been great. But with the, that was at the time we were about to go on the den. So yeah, I guess we were just super, super optimistic. I guess also entrepreneurs, your, your financial modelling sometimes is too optimistic. So your revenues are too high, your costs are too low. So your model just shows you you don't need as much money. Whereas if you were more realistic about the top line and possibly the, the cost as well, yeah. very quickly you realise you do need more cash. I'm super pragmatic and whenever I build a financial model, I always build in like 20% extra cost. But even then, I'm yet it's to see... It's going to be 40 next time. Exactly. I'm yet to see any business that said, this is our first year forecast and they've actually hit it. So that's the first one? Um, the second one is test and learn. Don't do anything unless you can measure it, especially in a digital business. That's what I talked about right at the start where we didn't get our B2C marketing right. Test and learn. Make sure that before you commit to something, you've got your marketing funnel worked out. You know kind of what your conversion rate of a campaign should be. And you can test with 50 quid, 100 quid. It doesn't need to be thousands. Do that small bit of investment, validate something and and, and then go for it. Now, this is like super practical advice, but... I heard that kind of thing said to me before we started. I was like, no, we'll figure it out, we'll figure it out. Just do what you can to give yourself like that little bit of extra insight before you commit to any kind of big, big spending. And there's a huge amount of support out there if you're going on YouTube, wherever it might be, about people explaining how to do that. But the, the beauty of digital businesses is that everything should be measurable. Yeah, everything should be measurable. And you can learn it all yourself. So you want to make sure that knowledge is within your business. You can't be relying on a third-party supplier to run core aspects of your business. And I, I think it's really important to understand enough so that when you do outsource it, you understand when a supplier is trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Exactly, exactly. That knowledge has to be within the company. So that's two. The third one is build a really good support network around you. You are going to... Starting a company is really difficult. All the cliches are true. You know, it's up and down. It's a roller coaster. I think my story is interesting, but I don't think it's unique. I think people go through just as many ups and downs as I did. And 
I built myself an excellent support network. I got myself a mentor and that really helped me get through those, you know, troughs of the roller coaster. So yeah, build yourself a support network and talk about what you're going through. And, and do that from the early days. Do that from, from the early one. days. Yeah, because from day one, you're going to have difficulties. From day one, you've had an argument with your co-founder. Someone's let you down. You're not making as much money this this way. You're just absolutely exhausted and you don't know how to switch off. Well, thanks, Johnny. That's been really interesting. I think you've been very uh, open and frank and shared some great experiences there. And uh, best luck for the future and for the, the next venture. Thanks very much. Cheers, Piers. That's all for this episode of the Rethinking Business podcast from NatWest. Thanks again to Johnny Plain, founder of Pouch. To discover more about the topics we've discussed today, business insights, local events, and stories from businesses facing the same challenges as you, search NatWest Business Hub or go to natwestbusinesshub.com. I'll be back in a week's time with our next episode, so make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. But until then, from me, Piers Linney, thanks for listening.